If you will, take your Bibles this morning, and we're going to turn open to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue to work our way through that book. And this morning, Matthew chapter 24, and we are looking at verses 29 through 51 of Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 51. Let me lead us in prayer before we read and hear God's Word preached this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that this Word is on a page. It would not just be black letters to us or red letters, if it be, in our Bibles. But they would be living words that jump off of the page, seize a hold of our hearts, stir our affections, inform our minds. We might see you clearly and see what it is that you have told us clearly. We might live in light of it to your glory and for your eternal praise. That's why we meet more than anything else to give you glory and eternal praise. So working in us even this morning, in Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 51. This is the holy and errant word of God. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as as in those days before the flood, they were drinking and eating, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all the way. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But you know this. 
that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites." In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We spent the last two weeks looking at what we have come to call the Olivet Discourse, uh, where Jesus is... Seeking to answer, you will remember two questions that the disciples brought to Jesus. The question of Jesus, when will Jerusalem and the temple be destroyed? First question. And when will you return and the end of the age be ushered in? Second question. And we've seen these past two weeks that as they asked these two questions, they saw them as happening at one time simultaneously. And we've seen Jesus over the last couple of weeks that He is answering their two questions, but as He answers their two questions, He distinguishes between them, and He shows that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem will happen in A.D. 70, and that is a separate event from His return and the end of the age. In our passage this morning, He is focused upon and centering upon that second question, His return and the end of the age. And I want to look at that this morning. As he answers their one question, I want us to ask three questions to try and sort through this this text. So these are the three questions. First, who is coming at the end of the age? Who is coming at the end of the age? Second, how will he come at the end of the age? And third, when will he come? When will this end of the age be? So who is coming? How will He come? And when will He come? I hope that all of you in this room and in the room over there and that are with us online, I hope you know that this age is coming to an end. I hope you know and you believe that. That what you and I are seeing, what we're experiencing, what we're active in, that this is coming to a close. And that there is a new age that will be ushered in, and that new age will be ushered in, and it will be ushered in for all of eternity. The way that you answer these three questions that we're asking of the text today will inform how you live in the present in light of the fact that He's returning. 
So it has incredible ramifications for you and I today. So I want to look at these questions. First, who is coming at the end of the age? If I ask that question this morning, I ask you to reply in this room, who is coming at the end of the age? I think almost, if not all of you, would reply, Jesus. And that's the right answer. That's a good answer. Jesus is returning at the end of the age. And if I was to follow up that question, I was to ask, well, how will He come at the end of the age? What will He be when He comes at the end of the age? Most of you, I think, would reply, the first word that comes to your mind is judge. He would come at the end of the age as judge. And that is also a right and good answer. We see that clearly in our text. He says in verse 30 that the nations will mourn when they see the Son of Man on the clouds. Why will they mourn? Because He comes, He returns as judge. The nations have rejected Him, and when He returns upon the clouds, He will manifest His complete and His eternal rejection of them for rejecting Him. That's even how He closes our passage. We're told in verse 51, That those Jesus finds lacking faith and faithfulness, he will, quote, cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's coming as judge. Absolutely. Notice that he also comes as the Son of Man. He uses that reference throughout this text. He not only comes as judge, He also comes, as He says, the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite self-designation. He takes that from the prophecies in Daniel of this one, this end times figure, this one that has all authority, that will come in glory, will suffer for His people, that He might bring His people to glory, this Son of Man. That's what Jesus says in verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign, the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He then references Himself as the Son of Man again in verse 37, in verse 39, in verse 44. The Son of Man who comes to suffer for His people that He might usher His people into glory. This One who has all authority. This apocalyptic figure. He comes as judge. He comes as the Son of Man. But He doesn't just come as judge. He doesn't just come as son of man. We also see in this passage that He comes as the master of the house. That's how He refers to Himself. He's the master. In verses 43 through 51. This is His house. What is His house? This entire universe and this earth that we dwell in, this is His domain. And He is master of it all. And He will not allow it to be left to be ruled by others. This is His. And so when He returns, He claims what is His. And He sets it in order. This is His house. He will not leave it to be ruled by others. Paul will write of Christ's master status over all things in Colossians 1. As Paul speaks of it, he calls it Christ's preeminence. 
He will say that Christ is preeminent in all things. In Colossians 1, he says this, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, through him and for him. That is, that Christ made all things. He is the creator of all things. So all things belong to him. But not only did He create all things, but all things were not only created through Him, but all things are created for Him. This is His. There's nothing His Lordship does not touch. And so He returns as Master. He returns as Judge. He returns as the Son of Man. He returns as this Master. You'll notice the authority in each of these. It's an authoritative figure that returns. We also see in the text that He comes as the gatherer of His people. He says in verse 31 that He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect, that is, those whom He predestined before the foundations of the earth that He would save them. He returns upon the clouds to gather them to bring them together, to rule over them. He says, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. In fact, that's, I think, the very emphasis of this text. We're told this in verse 31, and all the way that section from verse 31, but especially 36 through 51, it is highlighting the fact that Christ is gathering His people. That's what He's doing when He returns. In fact, he points to the days of Noah. He speaks about these days of Noah as historical fact. Again, this is not a children's story for him. This is real. And as he speaks about Noah, he speaks about that flood that comes and that it sweeps away all of the people on the earth except Noah and his covenant family who were safe in the ark. And he goes from there to speak of that, to speak of two men that are laboring side by side, and one is taken and one is left. And then two women that are side by side, and they are grinding, and one is taken and one is left. He comes, not just as judge, or that apocalyptic son of man, but he comes as the master of the house. He comes to gather his people, his own. He's the good shepherd, the great shepherd who gathers together his sheep. That's what he's doing when he returns. There's great comfort in this for the Christian. Great comfort to think that when he returns, he he returns for us and, and he returns to gather us together. That he might rule over us and protect us and love us and safeguard us for all of eternity as we just find our refuge in Him. It's probably happened to all of us at one point or another, but where you say something that you meant to be a compliment or positive for someone and that person interprets it as just the opposite, I mean, every husband has done this where your wife comes out and she's wearing a new outfit or a dress and you say, oh, you look really good in that outfit. Did you just change? And she responds, did I not look good in the outfit that I was wearing before? 
it just gets turned. It just gets turned upside down. This passage, especially verses 36 through 51, is one of those passages that was meant to be of comfort to the Christian. And yet it gets turned upside down. Begin to read this text and think that Christ is talking about some kind of secret rapture where he is taking some people away, the people that are his, he takes away, and there are others that are left here, left behind, and, and it becomes this scary kind of view for the Christian. Did I miss it when he took people away? But that's not the purpose of this text. No. He comes and He takes away those that He is taking away to judgment. That's the context. When He speaks about Noah, the days of the flood of Noah, what happens? Noah and his family go into the ark and the unbeliever, the faithless ones, the faithless ones are swept away. They're taken away. When the Babylonians, you see this throughout the Scriptures, when the Babylonians and the Syrians, they come and they conquer the nation of Israel, what do they do? They are sweeping away, they are taking away the faithless ones. It is not Noah and his family that are taken away, but those who were judged were taken away. And this is what happens in judgment. This is who is coming, Jesus, this great shepherd of the sheep. And when he comes, he is gathering together his people. It is the faithful man who remains. It is the faithful woman who remains. It is those who were unfaithful, who did not have faith in Christ, that are then taken away. No one in his family remain. They're the ones that are left behind, gathered This is who is coming, Jesus the judge, Jesus the son of man, Jesus the master of the house, Jesus the gatherer of his people. If we turn to other passages in the scriptures, we would see that Jesus comes as the bridegroom of his bride, the church whom he gathers together. We would see that he comes as the rider upon that pale horse who is exercising dominion over all of his enemies. Maybe my favorite reference to who Jesus is when he comes is in Acts 1. When those two angels are there with the disciples, the disciples who are with Jesus, with the resurrected Jesus, and then He ascends right before their eyes, and they're left without Jesus. But two angels appear. And these two angels say to the disciples standing there in Acts 1, they say, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Who's returning? This Jesus. The same Jesus that you walked with. The same Jesus that you talked with. The same Jesus that you heard preach. The same Jesus that you saw do miracles. The same Jesus that as we will celebrate this week, suffered. And died on a cross for you. This same Jesus 
who loved you so much that he was buried in a grave, the same Jesus who was resurrected on the third day, the same Jesus who you just saw ascend to the right hand of the Father, it is the same Jesus who returns for those he loves. Not someone different. Not something different. But this Jesus, that's who's coming. It leads to our second question, but how will he come? How will he come? Let's first make it clear that he only comes once. Jesus only comes once. Again, not to pick on dispensationalists. We went through this a little bit the last couple of weeks. Uh, but I, I want to walk through a little bit of what dispensationalists believe because so many of you have that subconsciously, if not consciously, in your mind when you think about the end times. And I sat under oh, wonderfully godly dispensational professors at the seminary I went to. Some of the godliest men and women I've known are dispensationalists. Many of them taught me to love the scriptures and taught me theology. But I think this view is just wrong. Dispensationalism, we might call it also pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism. Some of you are familiar with that as a designation instead, but it is this view is that a dispensationalist looks at theology, looks at the Scriptures, and they say that God made certain promises to ethnic Jews. He made specific promises to the nation of Israel, and in part, those promises are that ethnic Jews must inherit the land that they believe God promised to Abraham that is still not yet fulfilled. And so, there must be a time that ethnic Jews are in that land that God promised to Abraham where Christ will rule upon them over the land as they look at Revelation 19, 20, and 21. And they would say it would be a literal thousand-year millennium where Christ is ruling over the nation of Israel in the land that He promised these ethnic Jews. As we said a couple of weeks ago, this is a very new view. Only developed in the 1840s. But most of you know it just because it has spread so quickly in especially American evangelicalism. But here's the problem. One of the problems. Dispensationalists realize that as they are viewing this, they're saying, look, Christ needs to reign over the nation of Israel in the land for a thousand years. He needs to be with them. Well, you got a problem. What do you do with us? What do you do with Christians? There's all of these Christians that are still here. You have to get them out of here. Somehow you got to get Christians off the face of the earth so that Jesus can rule over Jews in the land of Israel for a literal thousand years. And thus, they developed the doctrine of the secret rapture. And they used this passage in the 1 Thessalonians 4 to make the argument for the secret rapture. you got to get Christians out of here somehow. So Christ comes back takes Christians and puts them in heaven and then he returns again later 
to rule over the nation of Israel in the land. And so you have multiple returns of Christ, depending on the dispensationalists, at least two, if not three or more. But we've already seen in this text, it doesn't work with this text. It is Noah and his family that are left behind. It's the faithful ones. That's the illustration that Jesus uses. So when you have two men that are standing there, it is not the unfaithful that is left behind. It is the faithful that's left behind. When you have two women grinding at the mill, it's not the unfaithful that is left behind. It's the faithful. The unfaithful are swept away into immediate judgment. And it's immediate. Look what Jesus says. There's one return. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, He says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. When the Master appears at the end of this passage, He doesn't reappear multiple times. He reappears once. And there's immediate blessing for those that were faith-filled and faithful. And there's immediate discipline for those that were not. Once. Second, let us make it clear again that he will not come quietly or secretly. There is no multiple returns of Christ where he comes one time secretly and quietly. Verse 30, he comes in all of his heavenly glory and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Verse 31, all will hear. He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. Paul reinforces this imagery over and over in his letters as he speaks about Christ returning. It will be loud. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection with the return of Christ, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. It's going to be noisy. You're not missing this. Not only is it going to be noisy, it's going to be dramatic. Verse 29, he uses cosmic imagery. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. When Jesus returns, all the cosmos trembles. This is His domain. Mind you, Romans 8 there where Paul talks about all of creation groaning looking forward to that day when Christ shall be revealed and He returns upon the clouds and all the sons of God shall be revealed. It's cosmic. Everything is touched by Christ's return. There's no escaping it. There's no missing it. There is absolutely no ignoring it. Finally, when will He come? When will He come? You remember, this is one of the two questions that the disciples are asking Jesus. When will you come? When will be the end of the age? And the short answer is, we don't know. 
And we're not meant to specifically know. However, we do know some of the things that will be signs of His coming. He provides the example of the fig tree prior to summer, much like right now we're experiencing spring and you look outside and you got little buds on trees and that's a sign of the fact that we're emerging into summer. He says, you know the summer is near. Why? Because the leaves on the tree, he says, verse 32. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near, meaning himself, at the very gates. And what are some of those signs? Well, we saw earlier in this chapter in verse 14 that one of the signs is that the Word of God will be preached to every corner of creation. That the light will shine in all places. We know that there will be a severe tribulation as we saw last week. Now, I believe and think It's a strong argument from the text to say that we're already in that tribulation, but it seems like that tribulation is something that grows in intensity as we approach those last days. It seems to me to be how we reconcile the words of Jesus there in verse 34, that all of these things will be experienced before that generation passes away. He's speaking about the destruction of the temple and speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he sees those as birth pains and as a foreshadowing of intense, of intense intensity and persecution and destruction and tribulation for the people of God. It's the beginning of the birth pains. It seems, at least to me, that one of the signs will be that even as persecution continues to grow, so the number of people throughout the earth coming to saving faith also continues to grow. Paul will say in Romans 11 that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There is a fullness that needs to be experienced where the number of Gentiles that are appointed to come in, come in. I think Matthew 13 speaks to this ever-increasing as we see this, this mustard seed that is planted, very smallest of seeds, and yet it grows and expands to be like a kingdom that flourishes throughout all the world. Or as he speaks to the leaven that works its way through this container of flour and spreads through all the flour. Seems to me the word spreading and many coming to saving faith is something that increasingly happens leading up to the end. For those of you keeping score, I'm a, what I like to call an optimistic amillennialist. Paul says in that same Romans 11 passage that all Israel will be saved. And I take this as meaning that there will be a mass coming to saving faith of Jews in the last days as well. The context, I think, seems to demand that. He's talking about ethnic Gentiles. He's talking about ethnic Jews in Romans chapter 11. And yet he cannot mean that every Jew will be saved when he says all Israel will be saved. Not every Jew is saved. 
Because not every Jew believes that the Lord Jesus is Christ. He just details that in Romans 10 where he says that you must confess that Jesus is Christ, that he is Lord to be saved. So what does he mean? I think it is that in the end days there will be a mass coming to saving faith of Jews that place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that all will be saved, but that there shall be such significant number in that generation that Paul can say, all will be saved. I think this will be a further sign of his return. There are others that we could mention. And even with these signs, we don't know specifically when he will return. In fact, Jesus says that no one knows the day, no one knows the hour. He says not even the angels that are sent out to gather the people know the day or the hour. He says not even the Son Himself knows the hour, only the Father knows the hour. Now, how can that be? How can the Son not know when it will be? It can't be that the Son is ignorant the three persons of the triune Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they possess a singular mind. They possess a singular will, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If the Father knows, the Son knows. And if the Son knows, the Spirit knows. And God knows all things. They're one being, though they're distinct persons. So Son, as the second person of the triune Godhead, He is never ignorant. He is never absent of knowledge. He is never able to grow in knowledge because He's God. And God knows all things. Then what does Jesus mean? Well, He's speaking of His willingness to self-limit Himself in His incarnation. Remember in Philippians 2, where Paul will say that when the Son of God became flesh, that He emptied Himself. He emptied Himself, not that He emptied Himself of His deity. He didn't empty Himself of any of His divine attributes, but He emptied Himself in the sense that He chose not to use His divine prerogatives for Himself. And so we see that here. He's speaking of His self-limiting in His humanity. In His humanity, Christ does not know when He will return. In His humanity, He has a mind that learns and grows. As Luke says in Luke chapter 2, the Lord Jesus, as He was a boy, He grew in wisdom and stature with both God and with men. He grew in knowledge. In his human nature, he doesn't know that year. He doesn't know that day. He doesn't know that hour. And yet, we could just as easily say that Jesus knows that year, and he knows that day, and he knows that hour. He doesn't know in his humanity, but in his deity, he knows. When he says, the Son of Man does not know the hour, he is attributing what is true of one of his natures to his entire person. What is true of his human nature, he is attributing to his entire person. The Son of Man does not know the hour. Well, in his humanity, Christ does not know the hour. 
We see this over and over in the Scriptures in relation to Christ, where what is true of one nature is attributed to the whole person. We'll experience it this week as we celebrate this Holy Week and Jesus dying upon the cross. We will say that Jesus died upon the cross. Did Jesus die upon the cross? Well, absolutely. He died upon the cross in His humanity. And yet God cannot die. And so even as He died upon the cross, He lived upon the cross. What is true of one of His natures can be attributed to His whole person. Paul will take this so far in Ephesians 20 that when, I mean Acts 20, when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders on the beach, that he will say that God shed His own blood for the sheep. Does God have blood? No. But he's speaking of that nature of Christ. That Christ upon the tree shed His blood as the God-man. And as was true of His nature in humanity that He shed blood, so Paul attributes it to His whole person so much so that he can say God shed His own blood. What is true of one nature can be attributed to the whole person. So Christ in His humanity, does He know the day and the hour? No. Does Christ and His divinity know the day and the hour? Yes. We think back on the previous week's text. If Christ in His humanity doesn't know the day or the hour, then you've got to be careful of those that say that they know the day or the hour in their humanity. It seems almost goofy to say it to a bunch of Christians that are gathered in a place to say, be on guard against those that would say they know when Christ is returning. But we have to say it. Because there are so many Christians over the centuries that some fool says that he knows in his humanity when Christ is coming, at what day and what hour, and Christians go traipsing after that fool. No one knows the day or the hour. No one. We simply know that He shall come. He shall come. Jesus gives one application for you and I. One application from this text. Verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready. Be ready. That's the application. Be ready. Be ready for what? Be ready for His return. He's coming. But I haven't seen all the signs. These signs that you mentioned, Jason. I, I haven't seen them, so it can't be that He is coming yet. But you notice what Jesus does in the text. He sets up incredible tension. He speaks of His coming, but He speaks of His coming in suddenness. There's a tension that we are meant to feel as we go through this text so that you and I will live in a ready state. So that we will li live with the expectation that He could come at any single possible moment. 
And he says, these signs, these signs, what are they to you? They are just signs that this is a reality that I'm going to return. They're kind of proofs and guarantees to you that what I said is true. But realize I could come at any moment and live like it. Be ready. Be ready. I wonder if you live each moment as if he could come back. Do you live each hour as if Jesus could come back this hour? Jonathan Edwards, the some consider the greatest theologian America has ever produced. When he was 19 years old, he wrote a list of 21 resolutions that he would seek to live his life by. He would expand those over the years later, but when he was 19, he wrote 21 of them. I just want to read a few of them to you. This is a man seeking to live in light of these questions. Resolved never to do anything out of revenge. Resolved never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to his dishonor more or less upon no account except for some real good. And then he has a number like this. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. He lived his life from hour to hour. If Christ came back this hour and I heard the trumpet sound, would I be happy with what I was doing this hour? Or would I regret it and be ashamed? Change how you live. He's coming. We're to be ready for a sudden appearing at any moment. And when he does come, there will be no time to set things right. There'll be no opportunity to make an appeal. There will not even be a single second to make any kind of change. As He finds you when He comes, so you will be for all of eternity. Those who are His will be blessed. Verse 47, Truly I say to you, He will set Him over all His possessions. It will be an absolutely glorious day. Oh, His returning upon the clouds for the Christian will be a day like no other day of rejoicing. But for him or her who has not looked him in faith and lived according to that faith, there will be severe judgment. He says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will be carried off and taken into judgment. Well, he gathers with his people and gathers them together to dwell eternally in their midst for all of eternity.
Be ready. You know, Noah, Jesus uses that example of Noah. You know, Noah, he built that ark. You know how long he built that ark? He built that ark for 120 years. For 120 years, he is out there pounding. Did they have nails? I don't know. Whatever he was doing for 120 years. And people are going by, we're told in Genesis, and laughing at him and making fun of him. What a fool you are, Noah. What a fool to spend 120 years building this ark. Live for today. But you see, Noah knew. He knew the flood of judgment was coming. And it came. So he lived in light of tomorrow. It's been 2,000 years. You Christians are silly. Live for today. So silly. No. We know he's returning. We know he's returning. And when he returns, there is the flood of judgment and the flood of blessing. Be ready. Be ready. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that through your Son, revealed to us that He is coming. Would you help those of us in this room and in the other room online to live in light of the return of our Savior? May we look to Him who shall come as judge, as the Son of Man, as the master of the house, as the great gatherer of His people, as our Savior. May we live each hour in light of His sudden and imminent coming. We pray for those that are here or tuned in even this morning that have not found Christ to be their ark of refuge and safety. That You would even now pour out Your grace upon them that they might know the comfort of looking forward to that day when Christ shall return. Ah, what a glorious day it shall be to gaze upon the glory of our Savior, to see Him upon the the clouds with the angels and the archangels, to see all the earth tremble, and to erupt in shouts of joy that here is our Savior. Here is the King of kings. Here is the Lord of lords, this Jesus, who loves us and will love us for eternity. And we pray with the apostle in faith, come quickly, Lord Jesus, how we long to see you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. What a glorious day that shall be. In Christ's name, amen.